Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail, why would you invest in forests? Chinese ports are at full capacity. It's causing significant disruptions to the supply chain in the forestry industry. There's been a perfect storm where the Chinese market has oversupply. There's no room in the port anymore. We've sort of choked it. The worst thing is just trying to keep the boys and men employed. Sometimes the larger forces of the market are just too big to counter. And I think uh, we'll have this shipping congestion and high rates for some time to come. So sky-high shipping rates, log jams at ports and the Delta disaster. And on top of that, the industry gets a bad rap. We feel there's real risk around our rural communities. People in Gisborne and Wairoa say the industry is uh, damaging their pristine environment and ruining communities. It's the spray and walk away concept. You can see how soul-destroying it is. People come and plant the trees and then they walk away. 16 years ago, you wouldn't have thought about closing down a beach. It just takes a king tide to pick up the big logs and keep them in the sea. We lose that rural infrastructure, that rural employment. You can just get a truck after a truck after a truck. And so it's impacting on us socially as well as, I believe, emotionally and mentally. Today, we look at the pros and cons of owning a forest. Well, I've been involved in the forest industry over 40 years and I've never been more confident about the future for forestry. That's Phil Taylor of the Forest Owners Association and head of a firm owned by a US family who have forests in New Zealand. And he has his own tale to tell about a bad investment. And this is Alan Laurie. I see some of those reports and the negative slant that's put on forestry's investment and I'm left somewhat flabbergasted, to be honest. He's a forest manager and consultant who started his career in forestry nearly 50 years ago as a woodsman. Nobody wrote the rule book on what you would do and what the net impacts across your business would be in a COVID-infested world, and, and so we're all challenged. But what we experienced with the last lockdown was, of course, a, a resurgence in business, which was quite unprecedented, and people with climate change awareness are looking at forests as investments, we're getting an awful lot of inquiries, inquiries through our business right across the scale from people wanting to plant a couple of hectares of trees to people wanting to plant several hundred hectares of trees. And the wonderful thing is that people are looking at a wide range of variety of species, not just radiata pine. They're looking at native forests. They're looking at redwood forests. But, Alan, why are you getting so many inquiries, so much interest? Because you could say that there are hurdles every step of the way for investors in forestry. I read your monthly newsletter. Now, the latest one that you put out, you know, I'm reading about the high cost of shipping for a start and then the fact that a million cubic metres of logs are sitting out on boats somewhere around the world. And that's only one part of the whole chain of forestry right so what's good about it really yeah. well, I'm, I'm pleased you've asked that question and I'm pleased I have the opportunity to answer it and and uh, you know if you like with the real oil and that is why why would you invest because in fact if you look at all of the impacts both negative and positive the net the net the bottom line to all of this is that returns from growing forests on a per hectare basis across land in New Zealand remains some of the highest of any, uh, they're certainly highest amongst the commodities. 
So even though shipping costs are the highest they've ever been, in fact, more than double they've ever been, so are the selling prices in China, almost double what the historical levels have been. And so, yes, there are challenges, but the rewards are there. We have many forest owners, uh, shareholders who invested in a forest, you know, 26, 28 years ago who are about to harvest and are pleasantly surprised by what they're going to achieve. And certainly there's nothing of a pastoral farming enterprise that could have exceeded that. And people say, oh, well, there's concerns about half of New Zealand will finish up in trees. Not so, and the simple reason is that forestry is profitable, but on forest-growing land. Forest owners cannot afford, for example, to buy expensive land and some of the the higher-value pastoral farming properties for sheep and beef at $15,000 a hectare. Forestry simply cannot afford to compete. So your agents, you say, got on the phone to you straight away when um, New Zealand's lockdown was announced. Was there an instant change in the price as well? No. In fact, during lockdown and in the week leading up to, the market was essentially what we call sitting on its hands. In other words, it wasn't writing it wasn't writing letters of credit, it wasn't writing contracts, because everybody has a, had a sense there was a change occurring and prices were falling and buyers suddenly sat on their hands not wanting to sign anything until they could see where the bottom fell. So whilst there was a lot of communication, the net impact was a really there was no price in the market, which was quite an extraordinary thing. Normally speaking, you ring somebody, you can find out what are you prepared to pay for logs. Uh, we went through a period of close to three weeks where nobody was prepared to even offer a price in the market. And wow. so in some cases, it was actually wood being shipped to China without a price attached to it. And that's very scary stuff when that starts to happen. When you asked about the impact of the, uh, the million cubic metres of logs sitting off China mm. and what the net impact across New Zealand ports are, well, the great thing about COVID is the government did allow the continuing loading of vessels and we had quite a build-up of stock at some ports, Tauranga and Gisborne particularly, when, and COVID did allow us to clear those ports, not completely, but they certainly got the numbers right down whilst there was no wood coming in. And so that's been great for the New Zealand side just to clear away some volume. And then on the China side, the net impact hasn't been felt yet because there's a million cubic metres sitting on vessels. It normally is on a normal day for the volumes going in. There's about a half a million cubic metres sitting in vessels off China, currently a million, which is way too high. Why is it that there is double the usual amount of wood sitting on ships off China? Is it just all related to the COVID crisis? I'm sure it's not all related, but the primary... Uh, discussion or primary comment has been around how COVID has impacted both in New Zealand and China, right? So we've had less people being able to load ships because in New Zealand it's just a pure labour availability thing. Um, And in China there is certainly the most discussion suggests that it's around lack of staff due to people being at home and sick with COVID. In fact, some a couple of ports stopped taking logs because of the congestion levels. So those are the challenges at the ports and on the ships. But what's going on on the forest floor for the thousands of smaller forest owners? Well, this is where I declare an interest. The challenges actually managing the forest up until now have been pretty doable. We don't have to go out every day and hug trees or anything. 
That's my father, Arthur. He manages a small forest I own with my siblings. And this is just a taste of some of the problems we've bumped into. Now that we wish to harvest, that's made it a different ball game, really. In what way? Well, we now have to comply with a lot of health and safety regulations. We have to try to obtain a harvester, a manager to manage the harvesting. In our case, we have run into problems with the um, significant uh, indigenous biodiversity sites, which the local council placed on our ownership documents without uh, notifying us. And we just uh, found that there were areas dotted here and there that we were not allowed to actually harvest the trees that had grown. So we had to um, negotiate with the local authority. We have also employed a, a professional environmentalist to act on our behalf. And also, harvesting did start before winter, but what happened? We had problems with the actual harvester themselves, the gang, and on the 21st of April, in one day, one night, we had uh, over 100 millimetres of rain, which caused extensive damage to the road which we had under, under construction. So that had to be repaired. And um, we were given a date to start harvesting by the, the people that we employ to uh, supervise the harvesting for us. And they didn't meet that date. And so instead of being in the middle of uh, a fine period, we found ourselves into um, autumn. So at the moment it's sitting there, nothing's happening, and you've had a lot of frustrations. Can you say that it's been worth it? I can't say. But one of the problems that we have is because the area is comparatively small. It's 25 hectares of uh, more or less mature uh, forest, which is uh, now 26 years old. But it's a smallish amount of, of trees, and so it's fairly difficult to get uh, harvesting gangs really interested because uh, they really do like to settle into an area and work there for months and, and in some cases for years. Your story is not unique, Sharon, in terms of the forestry part of it. And that's why I was quite clear when I said that it depends on what your investment objectives are. And, you know, for you, it was, it was, it was about being with the land, about something for your father, and the, the economics weren't the main driver. We're back with Phil Taylor now of the Forest Owners Association. And the forestry bit was only a part of it. Yeah. But it's also, you know, you're not you're not unique in running into those problems. There are literally thousands of small forest owners around New Zealand right now who are struggling with how do they minimise the suboptimization on their forest investment. And all the things you've talked about, you know, ability to get harvesting contractors, the cost of putting in roading, the regulations, the environmental constraints... They're, they're all very real. Right. Um, forestry is not for the faint-hearted. There are so many things that can trip you up if you're not aware of it. So yeah. I can tell you that myself, even with all my expertise, 
28 years ago, I made a poor decision to plant a forest on an island, believe it or not. Oh, did you? <laughs> and Yes. <laughs> Which island? <laughs> uh, we probably won't go there. Okay. But needless to say that um, it was a very poor decision and I made very little money out of it. Conversely, I know of my peers who invested in some very good sites, uh, particularly in the North Island, but also in the South Island, and they have made a very significant amount of money and a great return on their investment. And that just goes to demonstrate that if you are going to go into a forestry investment, you need to make sure you get good advice and you do your planning well. And despite your poor decision, you're still in the industry. Yeah, that was a, that was a private decision I made before I, um, what I say, had earned the wisdom that I've got through working in this industry for 40 years. I certainly wouldn't repeat that mistake again. Do you have your own forest now? Uh, no, I don't. Um, my day job is as managing director of a company called Port Blakely. It's a sixth-generation U.S.-based family company, and they have around about 35,000 hectares of forests here in New Zealand. Um, they've been investing in New Zealand since 1994. Um, they love New Zealand. They love investing in New Zealand. They have a lot of confidence and faith in, in the country and the people. And uh, being a family company, they have very strong family values, which extend in towards the company having a very strong commitment to the communities in which it operates. There's a lot of talk, isn't there, about what these big forestry investments are doing for rural communities, how they're destroying rural communities. The family that are behind this investment, how do they feel about that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there in the general media about that one, Sharon. And I think it's it's promulgated by a real fear from some of the rural community and a valid fear around um, the threats of forestry to a traditional lifestyle. That's sort of been manifested in some areas regionally around New Zealand where there has been a lot of land purchased from farming to plant in forestry. My own personal view is I think forestry has been unfairly blamed for that. I think that rural depopulation and that change to the rural lifestyle has been happening for the last 30 years, 40 years even. And it started back in the Rogenomics times in the mid-80s, late 80s, with the removal of subsidised minimum pricing from farming and basically the sort of the the commercialisation, if you like, of the New Zealand economy. And since then, we've seen farms rationalise. They've had to get bigger. Um, they've used more automation and they've reduced the number of people working on the farms. And, and, I, and, I, and then I think, you know, forestry has come along and it's sort of contributed to that mm. in a minor way because there's actually plenty of evidence out there that, that forestry is a far more profitable land use than traditional sheep and beef farming and also that it employs more people in the operations, particularly if it is intensive managed forests, such as this does pruning and thinning and harvesting. There are some valid concerns around this sort of permanent carbon forestry, which is effectively plant and leave. Mm. And I, I share those concerns, as does the Forest Owners Association. But I think by and large, uh, because of this polarised debate between farming and forestry, Farmers are missing a huge opportunity to invest in forestry and add sustainability and profitability 
and an extension of that sort of rural lifestyle into the future. You say that this, you, the family that you represent are investing in rural communities. Can you give me an example of where that's happening? Most of, most of Port Blakely's forest assets are in the sort of South Canterbury region, so um, centred around a town called Waimati. Mm. And uh, for a start, um, Port, Port Blakely uh, provides significant amount of employment in those forests. There's probably, there's probably up to 50 people who would be directly or indirectly involved in employment in Port Blakely's forest assets. I mean, we provide access to our forests for, for hunting. We support local sports teams, say, for instance. Americans generally are pretty altruistic, and Port Blakely owners are no different. So we have a significant sponsorship budget where we will support applications for sponsorship for a whole range of community-based activities. You know, developing mountain bike tracks in Herbert Forest, say, for instance working with local tangata whenua in terms of wetland enhancement, working with DOC and Timaru District Council in protection of uh, the long-tailed bat. The family recognises that it's a privilege to invest in New Zealand and not a right, and so it has to make its contribution to those communities. It's interesting because I see some of those reports and the negative slant that's put on forestry's investment, and I'm somewhat flabbergasted, to be honest. I... I struggle to understand how people arrive at their conclusions in some cases, which are horribly awry. I say to people who would employ us to manage, for instance, a harvest operation, is the reason they employ us is to manage risk. And what you're talking about is no different to any other land-based industry. They all have risks. Uh, They have regulatory risks. They have value risks. They have operational risks. Right now then, what are your biggest challenges? As uh, for any forestry company, our, our big challenge is safety. Safety number one, two and three. And when people have been sitting around and they're not fit to the job and they fall out of fitness very quickly for people who are actively working each day, climbing in and out of vehicles, um, might be swinging a chainsaw or whatever it might be. So fitness and fatigue is is, is a key for us at the moment and we're monitoring I've got my people out on the ground just visiting crews, keeping socially distanced, of course, when they're doing that, but just talking to the crew bosses, to the owners of the companies, making sure that people aren't extending, that we're looking after the safety. When do you imagine that you'll be back in China, actually be able to go back there? I guess it's like this phone call, this call, Sharon, and we do it by Zoom now, don't we? And, yeah. and I, can, I couldn't answer that because, uh, you know, you tell me when this new COVID-free world uh, will ease up to the extent that I could be confident to travel. If you can do it remotely, why, why do you go there? Uh, China trade is a very social thing to be involved in, and the businessmen that you work with are very, very warm and friendly. They are very sincere. You're wined and dined uh, like you're the king, and uh, you're really looked after. So I visit port companies and see what's happening. I'm visiting sawmills and physically walking around sawmills and talking with customers about log grades. You're basically on a fact-finding mission. Some of these places that you go to, are they enormous? By New Zealand standards, uh, you may uh, find them uh, highly extraordinary. And to go to a sawmill in China, for example, is to go back many, many years in New Zealand. The sawmills are very basic. They are low technology. 
There are no computers. They are very manually orientated. There's lots of people working in a sawmill. People say, why do you, why do we export logs to China and why don't we mill them here? Well, if you came with me on a trip to China, you would very quickly see why. And that is because of the living standards of the people that are there, the, the, the daily wage rate of a person, of a, of a laborer in China, and what we're really competing with. And that is to be able to mill our logs and get them into the international com- market as competitively as a China sawmill can. And we can't do that uh, across many of the segments. There are segments that the New Zealand sawmill will compete with very well. But those uh, high-volume commodity markets, New Zealand sawmills will not compete and cannot compete. It's just a function of price. They don't have resource consents. They don't have all sorts of laws and regulations which prevent them and, and add costs to their businesses. They operate in a very, very different environment to a New Zealand wood processor. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Phil Taylor, Alan Laurie and my father Arthur. Kakite anō. Ka